Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss this is the ocean protect podcast talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it presented by ocean protect committed to change tom gamage welcome to the ocean protect podcast thank you thank you brad for having me Pleasure. Very good. And obviously, you're calling in from swinging but seriously cold London. Is oh, I hear is that right? <laughs> I am indeed. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're based we're based in London. It's cold for most of the year, unfortunately. Tom, I jumped on your LinkedIn profile uh, before our chat. Obviously, extensive research that we do here, and and your official title is Ocean Campaigner with the Environmental Investigation Agency. But you've quite a diverse range of experiences and, and jobs. I'm just looking at them now. So fisheries biologist in Madagascar, field scientist in Madagascar, a scuba instructor in Komodo, a research assistant with Latin America sea turtles, dive master, lifeguard. And obviously your, your studies, you've been to the University of Plymouth for your undergraduate degree in science. Then you, you, then you saw the light and came to Australia and studied at the University of Tasmania. It's an incredibly checkered past you've got there. It's, it's quite amazing, really. I've been really, really lucky. I've sort of known roughly what I wanted to do since I was quite young. And I was instilled a work ethic at quite a young age. So I was always working from like a young age. And I always knew I wanted to be a marine biologist or a marine conservationist. But I wasn't always sure exactly which path I wanted to take. Mm. Uh, and so that led me to do loads and loads of different stuff. Um, yeah. That's a good move. And you're, you're currently, like I said, ocean campaigner for the Environmental Investigation Agency. So for people who aren't familiar, what is the Environmental Investigation Agency? That's a good question. So EIA or Environmental Investigation Agency, we're an NGO. So NGO is a non-governmental organization. We're essentially a registered charity. We pioneered investigative campaigning back in the 80s, which is where, you know, you hide cameras in suitcases and you, you know, you try and catch these illegal wildlife traders in the act, the sort of thing. Mm. And we, we sort of pioneered this technique starting off in the 1980s. And now what we do is still a bit of that. We still do some field investigations, but we also do a lot of policy work. We do a lot of desk based, but also field based investigations. And we use that to expose environmental crime and abuse and try and sway policymakers in a direction towards what we think might be more appropriate for environmental conservation. Yeah. And obviously now our focus is on the health of our oceans and in particular ocean plastic pollution. So, but I guess first up for you is how did you personally become interested in plastic pollution? I'm interested in, in sort of pollution generally, just because I think it's, it's a symptom of a wider a problem of sort of overproduction mm. and consumption, which I think is kind of symptomatic of our modern 
society. Plastic is kind of like the poster child of pollution, you know, because it's just so accessible and it's it's everywhere in our daily lives. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, plastic is literally everywhere, both as a product, but also as a pollutant. And so I suppose that's one element. Another element is just uh, well, I wanted to build my advocacy skills and EIA are, you know, one of the most effective, if not particularly well-known campaigning advocacy organizations. What makes an effective advocacy organization? Because there's a lot of people that obviously try their best, but what do you guys, what do you guys think you do that makes you guys effective? Yeah, that's a good question. We have a very clearly defined niche. We have very distinct expertise in our, in our subject area and we're relied upon as trusted advisors by many different policymakers all over the world. And also our reputation means that when we do an investigation, you know, the media and, and other stakeholders know that it's, it's, it's legitimate. We always, you know, uncover findings which are, if not earth shattering, definitely interesting to mm. most. Where do you guys get your, your funding from? Is it the community? Is it, you know, philanthropists? What is it? Yeah, a, a lot of it's uh, sort of statutory grants, family foundations. Um, we do right. just, or we'd also get individual givers that give, give frequently as well. Right. There you go. There you go. And, and look, we're here to talk about, like you come across my radar. Uh, I've seen your name mentioned a few times in various articles in relation to plastic treaties. And I know this is sort of a, I guess, a focus area of the Environmental Investigation Agency and obviously yourself. So for people who may not have as much expertise in this area as, as you would, can you give a snapshot essentially of what the um, global plastics emergency or issue is? So perhaps we can start back in the early 1970s. Okay. So this is the first time that plastic pollution was was actually properly reported in the literature, in the scientific literature. In the Sarcasso Sea and in the Atlantic Ocean, they were finding these fragments of plastics that birds were eating, and there was concern there at the time. But at the time, it was very much conceived as like a marine litter problem. Marine litter being, you know, consumers buying plastic products and then just chucking them in the environment indiscriminately. It was the problem of the consumer. It wasn't the problem of the producer. And this was a very convincing industry narrative that was cultivated over many, many, many years. The recycling narrative came in, we're going to recycle everything. And then people found out that actually most of it doesn't get recycled yeah. and so on and so forth. And now essentially what we have is a system where plastic production has increased 8,300% since the 1950s. It's increasing five times faster than population growth. It's roughly doubling every 10 years. At the moment, we produce about half a billion tons of plastic, virgin plastic, which comes mostly from fossil fuels. So it's very, very tightly connected to the fossil fuel industry and climate yeah. change. Over the next 20 years, it's expected to double, over double again, roughly. It's gone from a situation where it's, it, people have thought it's indiscriminate consumers just chucking plastic mm. in, in the, in the environment. And now what we understand is it to be a much more systemic problem of overproduction and consumption. I suppose that's one element of it. Another element of it is the relative impact that we understand plastic pollution to be having. I don't know if you remember like a couple of decades ago, you know, when, when it first started to get some attention, there was a lot of images of like turtles with their Mm. stomachs full of plastic bags there was whales washing up on beaches and all this mm. kind of stuff is super concerning but that is literally just the tip of the iceberg the plastic pollution crisis is far more than just you know wildlife choking and, and dying like it, it's much more sinister and it's much more serious than that it's a threat to climate stability because it has such a massive carbon footprint than plastic mm. Production is basically, um, at the moment, it's very tightly tied to uh, fossil fuel extraction. It threatens our health. 
big time. A lot of questions remain, but there's some real reasons to start worrying about exposure to, to, to certain plastics. Can I, can I quiz you on that one? Because that's something we've talked about a few times on this on this podcast in particular, like the link between plastic pollution and human health. And mm. it seems like the narrative is like, yeah, look, it's, it's a potential risk to human health, but no one can really give much definitive science around the yeah. link between human health and plastic pollution, basically. So if you've got some sort of insights from your perspective, I'm all ears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So firstly, I'll start by saying there are a lot of questions still, but we're not likely to get any answers anytime soon. And the reason for that is because normally when you want to investigate the impact of something on human health, you normally have to do these controlled like human trials where like you, you know, you get, you take some rats to start with and you feed them this stuff. And then you take humans and you put them in a control condition and then you feed them microplastic. That's not really an ethical thing to do. And no. also the biomonitor, the human biomonitoring studies that we need to, to determine this kind of impact are still in their very early stages. It's exceptionally tricky science to do, not least because the chemical exposure or the chemicals that we take on from plastics, and we know that plastics leach chemicals and they're full of different chemicals, that 10,000 different chemicals roughly, some of which can be damaging to human health. But determining that, okay, I you know, have a 20% increased chance of, say, cancer because I've been exposed to this chemical and it's directly because of plastic, like it's very difficult to answer that particular sure. question. But what we do know is we have this constellation of evidence, which if you join the dots together, what you do is you realize that actually we need to read between the lines. We need to connect the dots and recognize that there is a serious health issue here. We know, for example, with microplastics, we know in lab conditions. So you take human cells, right? And you expose microplastics in the lab. The concentrations that we're exposed to every day, everyone, everyone consumes about five, 10 grams a week roughly just breathing, eating, mm -hmm. you know, living, drinking water. We know that those concentrations can cause like cell death, mutation, immune, immune responses, inflammation, all this kind of stuff that's linked to increased chance of cardiovascular disease, degenerative like neurological disorders, mm. cancers, all this kind of stuff. And there's other evidence as well, like people that work in textile factories where there's a lots of microfibers have a increased, increased like lung cancer, things like this. Yeah. And like you said, whilst there's still questions that remain unanswered, we, we probably do not have the time to sort of do the double blind control studies that we'd otherwise need to do to sort of make definitive conclusions around microplastic contamination. We just don't have the time or the ability to, to you know, do the science. So we kind of need to sort of, you know, I guess adopt a bit of a precautionary approach in relation to plastic pollution. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if human health wasn't an issue, there's a million other reasons why we need to act immediately. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And just, just to put it in context, like there's obviously a, a number of environmental issues facing the planet, you know, climate change, deforestation, biodiversity loss. How does plastic pollution compare to these other issues from your perspective? Is it a, a, a lesser issue or is it, you know, I guess intrinsically linked? It's hard to do, discriminate, mm -hmm. but... The way I normally try and describe this, because I, I often, well, I have been asked by journalists several times in the past, like, which one's worse, plastic pollution or climate change? And it's like, it's interesting. It's like, is there a worse one? Like, the way I try and answer it is that they're intricately connected mm. in, in, in ways where you can't really separate them out. They are one in the same. Like, that's the way I try and describe it is like, historically, there's been this sort of false separation of environmental issues into like these little buckets. You know, like, oh, there's one, there's a problem here and there's a problem here and there's a problem here and they have different problem drivers and they have different solutions and we just need to treat them separately. We completely disagree with that. They're all intricately connected. The three main 
environmental crises, climate change, pollution, biodiversity loss, they're all interdependent and they're all mutually complementary of one another. So when you try and address one, you need to have these more holistic strategies which address multiple environmental threats simultaneously. One of those would be, for example, putting a cap on plastic production. That's a great idea because it's got such a high carbon footprint Okay, we want to reduce carbon emissions. Fantastic. Let's put a couple of production. Let's put sustainability criteria on the plastic products that we do produce. And then at the same, so better controlling what's flowing through the, the economy. So we reduce plastic waste and we also reduce carbon footprint at the same time. Sure. Yeah. Sounds yeah. easy. And obviously there's some no. vested interest uh, <laughs> when it comes to fossil fuel production and plastic production. And it's interesting your comment before about, you know, we're focused on, well, we thought it was just some indiscriminate litter bugs, basically, you know, and there's a lot of, campaigns around stopping litter in various urban environments in particular like in New South Wales and Australia for example we have the, the, the tosser campaign and and you know put it in the bin do the right thing and all that sort of stuff but fundamentally there hasn't been a huge amount of action in actually stemming the tide of this uh, production of plastic pollution we just had a podcast chat with um, a bunch of people and just around the inhalation uh, amounts that we're talking about it's it's quite staggering and scary yeah. and yeah. yeah so yeah. it's really scary what we do love to talk about is solutions. Uh, and one thing that the EIA has been calling for quite recently in particular has been a binding treaty on plastic pollution. And so in your opinion, so why do we need a global treaty on plastics? We need a global treaty on plastics because it's a global problem requires a global solution, essentially. We have transboundary uh, impacts it's a sort of problem which no one country can tackle alone, essentially. Mm. If you pollute in Thailand, you know, you're also polluting in Laos. You're also polluting in, you know, all the neighboring countries and beyond. Okay. Plastic is transboundary. It's, trans it's transported through wind, through waves, through tides, through air, through air systems. And so because of this transboundary nature, it inherently requires that international collaboration. Also, the, the, the problem drivers, not just the impacts, are also international as well. They're global. Mm. Um, yeah. Plastic is a commodity that's produced and traded internationally. Um, and so are products. Uh, and so we need this harmonization of products design how these products are designed also waste management systems need to be harmonized to the extent where you could you can trade between countries and, and, there, and there wouldn't be any issues there at a recent meeting of the united nations environment assembly and that was held in nairobi in kenya there was a, a bunch of ministers and representatives i think from about 173 countries and they agreed on the terms for negotiating uh, essentially a plastic treaty over the next two years. Is this plastic treaty essentially what EIA is actually wanting? In a simple word, yes. We have the tools and now we need to build the house, I think is the best way of describing it. It was the best outcome we, we could have possibly hoped for. We had a resolution, go, a resolution is decision that the assembly adopts. We had one going in, which was very much aligned with what, with what we were, with what we were pushing for from Rwanda and Peru. And that was discussed. And there were some other proposals from other countries. And, you know, it was a very intense week of negotiations that went on till three o'clock in the morning. Eventually what came out of it was the structure that we need to go forth and negotiate a treaty. So it wasn't anything to do with the actual substance of the treaty. That's what will happen over the next couple of years. But what was decided was a really, really, really solid foundation that we can start to build from. And it includes reference to sustainable production and consumption of plastics, which is huge design of plastic products. It talks about environmentally sound waste management, and it talks about the full life cycle of plastics and, and pollution in all environments, not just not just the ocean, which is key. 
Right. That's interesting. So, so I guess it's like the, the benchmark or the platform for the establishment of a treaty on, on plastics. Is, is there a time frame in mind in relation to when such an agreement might be actually, you know, finalized and agreed upon? So at the moment, the, the timeline is by the end of 2024 is the ambition of the countries that signed the resolution essentially. So hopefully by the end of 2024, there'll be a negotiated text that will be ready for adoption at a meeting of country representatives in 2025. So hopefully we're looking for a treaty which will be signed in 2025. Then it will have to come into force. So coming into force basically means that countries have to go back to their home countries and they have to take those elements in the treaty and transpose it to their national context. So they have to take it and transpose it into like a national action plan, which would then result in changes to their domestic or their national legislation. And then that takes time and so on and so yeah. forth. So the agreement, I guess, sets goals and, and actions, and then the individual countries go back and work out how they're going to achieve those goals and actions essentially and provide appropriate funding and set their own ca- key performance indicators, et cetera, I'm guessing. Yeah. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. More or less, more or less, yeah. What what items or aspects actually should be included in this plastics treaty? Well, the first one that pops to mind is sustainable production and consumption yeah. of virgin plastic. So those listeners that have heard of the sustainable development goals, this is like the main UN agenda of sustainability up until 2030. And one of the goals is sustainable production and consumption. So this is partly why it was in there in the first place. And this is, this is very key. It's extremely mm. key. So this is where we need to talk about what are the sustainable levels of production that we should allow? Should we cap production, which we think we should? Should we phase it down, which is what we think we think we should do? So that's one key conversation. Another one is around product design, the design of plastic products. I don't know if you guys, like in Australia, you've obviously got the same situation as here where you're never really sure if it goes in the recycling or not. And you always wonder like, how can they possibly tell if that's this polymer or that polymer? They're different types of plastics. Like, how do you recycle this? Yeah. So that, that, so that's what product design will essentially address. You know, rather than having, for example, toothbrushes, which are all made of plastic, plastic fiber lasts like two weeks and you chuck it away. It'll be products which have like sustainability criteria, things like in the case of this toothbrush, um, the handle would have to last a certain number of years. And you'd every time you the brush bit, you can replace, you know, that kind of thing. Because that could dramatically change... The supermarket, really, like the supermarket shelf, like if all our products have to have a certain, you know, product specification and lifespan and... Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But that's kind of what we need um, and that's kind of the thrust of this this report as well that we did before was, you know, the interconnectedness of environmental issues and the need to address them kind of together. So so you mentioned generational, generational production, uh, product design. What What other aspects are in this? Yeah. So I suppose within product design as well, we also have like just not just the physical design of products, but also the chemical constituents that go into it. Cause we have thousands and thousands of different chemicals that we have that are used in plastic products. A lot of them are hazardous to human health. So it would be about much better regulating what goes into what we produce. Another one would just be like being able to monitor and report effectively. So even just instituting these systems, like say with like a dedicated scientific body, perhaps that needs to be discussed that would be able to monitor or set the parameters for how we like monitor plastic in the environment but also what's flowing through the economy we don't even really know how much plastic we produce it's just kind of figures that are volunteered by the plastics industry (laughs) so we need that planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, and we've also got things like waste management in there yeah. as well. Is that particularly focusing on developing nations in relation to you know making sure that they have appropriate, appropriately designed and managed like landfill facilities? Well, I suppose it's in all countries really because, I mean, Australia exports uh, a lot of plastic waste. The UK is one of the worst offenders. We export a large portion of our plastic waste to countries like Turkey and Malaysia and Poland and countries which have like lower regulatory requirements, let's say. So we overproduce big time. So it would be for us as well, as well as the developing countries in terms of waste management, but it would have to be like locally tailored to the national context or the local context. I think in terms of developing countries or global South countries, let's say it would be more to do with this sort of the funding mechanism, because this is something that a treaty can do is it, it can set aside funds dedicated for the implementation and compliance of the treaty. And mm-hmm. so we would be expecting larger countries with broader shoulders to sort of help support some of these more you know, these developing countries in, in meeting the obligations of the agreement, let's say. And just getting back to the generation thing, because like you said, it's a, a key aspect of a potential treaty. I mentioned there's something like 173 countries involved in this UNEA agreement, but what about the plastic producers? Have they been involved in the development of this or, or the, the first sort of steps in this plastic treaty at all? Because obviously they're going to play a major role. Yeah, 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 big time. They've been engaging throughout via these sort of industry associations. Right. So in the lead up to UNEA, there was a pretty substantive body of work that was done at different sort of expert groups. And they engaged through like the American Chemistry Council and the World Plastics Council. They engaged through that, through that route, obviously pushing for no regulation throughout voluntary approaches, et cetera, et cetera. Of course. Really pushing it super hard. And they were also present on the ground at UNEA doing their thing. But when it went through, you know, they celebrated. I'm not sure if that was disingenuous or not. Um, <laughs> because ultimately, you're basically saying you guys are going to have to reduce how much money you make, basically, aren't you? Like, you guys are definitely generating a product that is problematic to the planet, human health, whatever. We want you to significantly reduce what you what you guys are producing. And that can't go down well to a, a for-profit companies across no. and big, big profit companies as well. Yeah, extremely powerful big profit companies. But like, what we try and say to them is, you know, if is it really so bad if we just reduce like the, the there's thousands of polymers that are produced right now, you know, and which makes recycling impossible or a circular economy impossible. It's like, is it really so bad that we're cutting what you can produce? Because then you have exclusive access to the market, right? This is what happened with another environmental treaty called the Montreal Protocol which phased out ozone depleting substances like substances which damage the ozone layer which protects the earth and that's a product and a pollutant just like plastics and that's what they did is they identified who was producing them they gave them a license to produce a certain amount over a certain period of time they can charge whatever they want they can charge whatever they want and there's no other 
people impeding on their market space, right? So this is what we're trying to explain to them is like, we're not trying to get rid of plastic. You know, it's a useful material and I'm not sure what else would replace it at this point. Is it really so bad if we just cut production and then give you the license to keep doing it? Because then there's no one else can enter the market. You have exclusive access to that. You can charge whatever you want, but yeah. And just on the topic of, you mentioned Montreal Agreement, because I'm sure a lot of people are aware of some uh, treaties, but there's actually quite a few that have already established. And uh, if I just run through just a couple of the companies, I've just done a quick Google search. There's the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species of Wild Flora and Fauna. That was in 1973. There's a Convention on Biological Diversity. There's the Kyoto Protocol, obviously, in 1997. The Montreal Protocol, which you mentioned, that was uh, targeting uh, the reduction of, of ozone depleting substances. And that was highly effective. That was uh, adopted in 1987 and entered into force in 1989. There was a Paris Agreement in 2016. The World Heritage Convention in, in um, 1975, it became in, in like, so long story short, there's actually a lot of precedents for environmental treaties. I'm just trying to get my head around as to are there key learnings that we can all sort of take from current uh, or historical treaties that can be essentially applied to a potentially new plastics treaty? Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, just drawing on the Montreal Protocol example again, just quickly, I don't know if you, you guys remember, you know, probably, probably more so in Australia, actually, in New Zealand, because mm, the ozone, that's mm. where the ozone was thinnest, right? But like back when we were kids, everyone was really worried about the ozone. Like it was a really big problem. You know, we're getting rid of this layer of like chemical at the top of our atmosphere that's protecting us from these like yeah. deadly sun rays. And so, yeah, the international community got together and they decided to regulate these ozone depleting substances. So like basically stuff that was used in fridges. Mm. freezers and cooling systems like air cons like there was those chemicals that had just mm. had this crazy high carbon footprint and these were products but they were also pollutants right which is exactly the same scenario that we have with plastics and the, one of the reasons it was so successful is because it focused its efforts upstream upstream is yeah. like the production side rather than focusing efforts more sort of downstream and so that's a lesson that i think we can take in the context of plastics is is, is the focusing our efforts upstream turning off the tap before we start like sort of mopping up the floor that's one lesson another one is the funding funding mechanism montreal protocol set aside a dedicated multilateral fund and that's no small reason what why its success was seen essentially because it had dedicated money that it could use to equitably distribute the resources needed to meet the obligations of the convention so that's a couple mm-hmm. of lessons that we can definitely take from that and obviously, this is a global treaty. Is there examples of essentially just country-specific treaties that have already been established that are in relation to plastic pollution that actually are in place and not working? Treaties related to plastic pollution? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. There's no, tre- there's no treaties related to plastic pollution. This is the first one. This is, this is right. it. Right. Mm. Even, even for a specific country? Uh, well, a country would have like national laws and sometimes yeah, you yeah. have like these regional agreements. You can have, re- you can have regional treaties and there are global treaties that, that will address a certain small part of the plastics life cycle. Like the Basel Convention is one which, which mm. regulates the trade and hazardous waste. And so there are entries for plastic waste in there. But I mean, it's always only once plastics already become waste, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So there's a couple of these treaties that exist, but they only tackle a very small part of the life cycle in a very small way. Yeah, I think that the, I'm just trying to think of, there's a couple that stand out, like, probably not treaty is the right word. I know, I know in Indonesia, they're looking to go plastic pollution free by 2040. Yeah. 
and now how effective that will be, I'm not sure. But there's a real focus on waste management infrastructure and the like uh, in, in in that country. I think uh, Canada has a sort of a plastic oceans treaty or something like that. And just recently in Australia, there's a I think there's, it might be just a draft Asia Pacific Marine Debris Agreement or something along those line along those lines to reduce the amount of marine debris in Asia Pacific waters. But to the best of my knowledge, there's been very little focus on the generation of plastic in any sort of agreement goals or anything that I've seen to date. I could be wrong, but yeah, certainly I'm actually quite surprised that there is actually a strong focus on plastic generation and production because look, obviously it's a key need. I'm just conscious of the all-powerful fossil fuel uh, companies across the planet that would be doing their dander to try and I, I would have thought to try and kibosh this this treaty so yeah no no for sure I think what what you were mentioning you know these agreements they're sort of voluntary agreements basically mm. the difference between this the treaty and those is uh, this is legally binding so this is something that countries have to go away and then move into their national legislation and with regards to the production thing, I mean, it's going to be a, it's going to be a bum fight, like you say, to get production in there, to get version production in there. We're going to have to pull out all of the stops. It's going to be a fight to the end, but we have the reference to sustainable production and consumption in the mandate given by the UN to negotiate this thing. Okay. So we have yeah. that behind us. So, and so just to confirm this, this treaty, if it becomes up and running in a, in a few years, will be a binding, a legally binding treaty. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and can you explain just for the list what that actually means? There's an agreement with very with specific terms, and it can be between either two parties, like a bilateral treaty, or it can be a multilateral treaty, which is like what we're looking at, like a global treaty, where there's a promise to do something in return for sort of valuable benefit, right? Valuable benefit being economic, environmental, social, and whatnot. So it's like it's an obligation. It's like a legal obligation, and countries can be held to account on what they do and what they don't do, essentially. Some people say there's no such thing as international law. It's only international relations. Countries can decide just not to sign an agreement. Like the US just never signed the Basel Agreement, for example. But because the whole rest of the world has signed it and tries to abide by it, then there's obviously that diplomatic pressure. But once you've signed it, ratified it, put it into national law, you have an obligation, you have a duty of responsibility to do that, to implement it, basically. That's very interesting. I mentioned those 173 countries at this get together in in Kenya are are essentially all the key players there. Like I'm thinking, you know, the, the Europe, America, China, various parts of Asia. Like are the are the key countries there that are essentially recognized as big plastic polluters? When you look at the amount of plastic from the hotspots of emissions, let's put it that way. The hotspots mm. of plastic emissions into the ocean, for example. Let's just say mm. the ocean as an example. Mm. You know, we've got Indonesia, China, some Southeast Asian countries. Like This is where the majority of leakage is taking place. We know that because from the rivers, river systems, and there's been studies on that. In terms of whose fault it is, like, it's kind of a global problem mm. um, just because up until very recently, we've been in the West, exporting a large portion of our waste to China. Up until a couple of years ago, we sent basically China, China was the world's dumpster because we sent all of our plastic waste there. Calling out China because all of our waste is entering the ocean from their country, kind of not really fair to say that, I don't think. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And just recently, we actually just had a, a podcast chat uh, with Tim Van Emmerich, uh, who's just done a, a study of the plastic pollution coming out of various river systems. And yeah, there used to be this narrative of uh, 80% of uh, ocean plastic comes from 10 rivers. And well, basically, Timmy's team's research has shown that 80% of the ocean plastic comes from about 1,600 river systems. So it certainly is a global 
issue. There's not just essentially a small number of countries or small number of river systems where the ocean plastic is coming from. It's basically coming from everywhere. That sort of, I guess, highlights the need for a global treaty and global action on this, like you said, sinister and, and growingly bad problem, basically. So... Yeah, so, so I guess so. This obviously, there's been this get together recently. So, what's your role now? So, what what are you what what's sort of next for you in the sort of advocating for global treaties on plastic pollution or, or other sort of plastic pollution related issues? What are you up to, basically? Yeah, yeah. So, I suppose the next major milestone will be something called the op- an open ended working group OEWG. We call it. So the OEWG will meet in Dakar, Senegal. This is the next major milestone and we'll be there. And then what that meeting will do is it will design the schedule for the negotiation. It will design the topics for what needs to be negotiated and how and when. Um, and it will just set the agenda. But it's like the prep meeting for the negotiations, let's put it that way. So we'll go to that. We'll try and do as much advocacy as we can. We produce briefings. We talk a lot to countries. We're just like another impartial voice, I suppose, in the process. Yeah. And a really important niche that we play i think is as experts on the topic being in the room during the negotiations like it's quite a valuable thing because people can lean on you for advice because sometimes when something's being discussed there's a lot of nuance there and the the the, the diplomats that are doing the negotiation aren't always you know or rarely they are actually you know, technical experts on the subject and so that's kind of what we'll be doing there yeah how do you how do you learn how to liaise with individuals from 170 different countries so there must be different cultural and social intricacies that that you must be uh, having to get your head around surely yeah big time i suppose and this is when the movement comes in handy when i say movement i mean the break free from plastics movement which is like a civil society movement i suppose and, um to end plastic pollution and we you know we coordinate a lot within that movement and we make sure that we support each other and our different core competencies like we maximize one another's capability so some organizations will have some countries, some will have others. Sometimes there's some quite complex relationships between, you know, different countries and organizations. Mm-hmm. And we try and find the most appropriate, most effective route of advocacy. Sometimes it's not through meeting with us. Sometimes it's through putting them in touch with some of our partners in country or something. So it's about like working out like what turns the levers of power. That's fascinating. It must be a, a diplomatic almost nightmare, but it's certainly a challenge and certainly one we wish you all the best with and obviously everyone involved. I'm just thinking the comparison that comes to mind is, is how, how politically complicated a Eurovision Song Contest is. Timed up by about a thousand times and, and have some very uh, large amounts of money involved and uh, you've probably got your uh, plastic pollution treaty group. But uh, but look, all the best, all the best for those uh, uh, shenanigans. But I guess there's the final question I wanted to ask you is, you're obviously living and breathing this plastic pollution problem and, and liaising with all these different governments, et cetera. Are you optimistic that we'll actually appropriately and effectively and quick enough address this issue of plastic pollution? I'm very optimistic and generally I'm a realist. So that goes to show, I suppose. Um, I suppose I'm more of a skeptic generally. But like with, with regards to this, I'm extremely optimistic. And there's several reasons for that. Firstly, because we have an extremely strong resolution. We have a very strong resolution and we have a very strong framework that we can work with to negotiate a treaty that we actually need. Another reason is that we have, I mean, it, this issue has captured the imagination of the public and policymakers alike in ways that nothing really has really but before in, in quite this way. It's so accessible and it's so relatable to, to, to people that we have this enormous civil society movement behind it. That's enormously important. And so we have a lot of push. We also have 
pull from industry as well. So as well as having the plastic producers, which will always be against, you know, production limits and stuff like this. There's also the fast moving consumer goods companies, companies like Nestle and Unilever and others that are really like pulling this as well. Um, they're sort of leading the way. And so we've got the push, we've got the pull, we've got the framework. So I'm, I'm really optimistic and just seeing how much progress has been made over the last couple of years. Like, and I'm just thinking what that will be like over the next few years of negotiations. A couple of years ago, imagining having a resolution that was this strong that would pass at UNEA was kind of unimaginable. Pie in the sky idea. Even three years ago, like when I first started doing this, it was a treaty was a pie in the sky idea that only us and a couple of others were pushing for. And now it's like happened. So you see how much progress has been made in that amount of time. Like I'm very optimistic. Yeah. Oh, look, uh, look, to be honest, that's great to hear. Gee whiz, this has been a fascinating chat. You've obviously probably captured the imagination of all our listeners now, Tom. So if people want to find out more information about, I guess, the work that you guys do or, or plastic pollution treaties in general, where would they, where would they best go? I think just best head either. If you're on Twitter, you can go to our Twitter profile, which is EIA underscore news, or you can just go to our website, which is EIA-international.org. That's EIA-international.org. Um, and you can find out all of the information that you could possibly want and even get in touch if you want to. Look out. I, that people might hold you to that, but uh, look, I'll include those links to the, in the show notes. But Tom, this has been a fa- fantastic chat. Um, yeah, thanks, bro. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a, been a real pleasure. Yeah. yeah, it's one thing to sort of see a name getting quoted in an article, and uh, but it's so good to be able to delve into the detail and, and get the perspectives from the, 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 the guy like you who's on the ground, you know, liaising with these uh, various countries advocating for and working towards trying to address this issue. So thanks so much for coming on our show. Really appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Boom, boom, shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.